Hope you'll take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. This chapter is unusual for containing two miracles that are antithetical to one another. One is a miracle of mercy. The other is a miracle and a great work of judgment. And in both miracles, there is an immediate change in the subject's physical condition. One goes from disease to health, the other from health to disease. Let me just remind you what we've looked at over the last three Sunday evenings as we studied 2 Kings chapter 5, which is a powerful and a profound lesson about the nature of God and the nature of man. We began by looking at some of the key players in this chapter. First of all, Naaman, the the leprous Syrian general, even though he's brave and beloved in Syria, Israel's great enemy at the time, he's a leper. And this vile disease is doing to him what it does to every person it infects. It's eating him alive. The second character is that person who's living right there in his own house, a young Israelite slave girl who was grabbed in a border raid, brought back to Syria, and she ends up in Naaman's house. And because she's a covenant child, she knows of God's work in the world, especially in Israel. She knows that God has his prophets and his miracle workers. Back home, she had heard all about Elisha, who was God's man of the time in Israel. And this girl believed that Elisha could miraculously heal her Gentile boss. What's so astounding is that this unnamed slave girl, Israelite girl, even cares about Naaman. He's her captor. He's her enslaver. He's an unbelieving, remen-worshipping, it's another title for Baal, Gentile. But this girl has a tender heart for the helpless and the unbelieving. And so quickly, through some of her comments, Naaman, her owner, her boss, ends up on the doorstep deep in Israeli territory, ends up on the doorstep of Elisha the prophet in small-town Samaria, a small area in Israel. Elisha, the prophet, tells Naaman how to wash, how to be cleansed, and he finally does so. Naaman offers repeatedly to pay Elisha for services. Elisha refuses. Naaman must know that God works through free grace, and he needs nothing that man can pay. And so Naaman, we think, when we come to verse 19 of our section, our chapter, Naaman is cleansed and grateful, and he rides off with his entourage back towards the east, towards Syria. And we think it's a great story, a great story of God's power, his grace, down payment of his mercy to Gentiles. And we learned some lessons in the first 19 verses. We learned the, the vile picture of man's dilemma as communicated through the image and the picture of leprosy. We see an amazing display of God's sovereign power. And we see that wonderful shadowing, foreshadowing of God's new covenant mercy to the Gentiles. Remember, Naaman was a Gentile, not a Jew. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 20 through 27. And the Lord is not content just to show us a a miracle of grace, a miracle of healing, but wants to as well show us a miracle of judgment in the exact same narrative. Because we're introduced to the fourth character in the narrative, not only Naaman and the unnamed slave girl and Elisha, but now Gehazon. This man is the servant of Elisha. He first appeared in the chapter before in 2 Kings 4 in Elisha's dealings with the Shunammite woman. 
And Gehazi has repeatedly seen his master Elisha do the great works of God that only a true prophet can do. And he chafes about it. It disturbs him greatly that Elisha is doing all of these great works and he's not monetizing them. And so he seizes, seizes the moment as Gehazi sees the entourage of Naaman ride off, the chariots, the horses ride off towards the east, back to Syria. As soon as Elisha goes in the house, Gehazi sets off in a dead sprint and he catches Naaman and his men. Naaman is so thankful. He's converted as we saw last week. He sees the servant of Elisha, Gehazi, running up to him. Stops the chariot, stops the entourage, and he inquires, is there anything I can do for you? And Gehazi begins a stream of lies, asking for some elegant clothing and some precious metals. Naaman, of course, is so struck with gratitude that he happily sends the requested items back to Gehazi's home in the care of his own servant. Gehazi hides the loot, and that's where we begin tonight. As we seek and ask the Lord for his help, his illuminating grace, my fear is that you're going to think that this text does not apply to you because inside this text, there's a sermon within the sermon. And it deals with a particular sin that I would doubt that anybody in this room would say they're afflicted with, which is sort of shocking to me. And I would wager if I were a betting man, but I'm not because I'm a Calvinist, but I, if I were a betting man, I would wager that it's been weeks or months or years or never that you confess this is sin. My hope is that God will prick us, will hold up the word like a mirror and show us our sin and our need of repentance tonight. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. Sovereign Lord, you've given us this text by divine inspiration. And you have told us that it will be profitable for us. It will profit us for doctrine. It will profit us for reproof. It will profit us for correction. And it will profit us for instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So take this word, press it home to our minds and hearts, deepen our trust in Christ, strengthen our love to him and our hatred of sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you're looking carefully at 2 Kings 5, the last part of the context, verses 20 through 27. And I want us, first of all, to look at sort of the litany of Gehazi's sins. They're easy to do. And we'll look at three or four of his sins. We could double that quite easily, but I want to be guarded with our time tonight. The first sin I want you to see of Gehazi's is his act of taking God's name in vain. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you. In just a moment, we're going to see that all these sins heap up and they're aggravated by other sins. But the first thing you should see, you can't even get over the introductions to Gehazi in verse 20, and you find him taking God's name in vain. What do I mean? Well, it's the third commandment, and negatively, certainly God is calling you and all of his people to refrain from all cursing and profanity and blasphemy and obscenity and vulgarity, but more to the point. He's calling you to refrain from theological lightness, all use of his name in vain, without any reverential awe or a sense of transcendence. But that's just the negative. 
The positive is we must always take great care in using the Lord's name. We must use his name in a weighty, exalted, praiseworthy fashion. We must honor his name through worship and obedience. We must use his name when we call on him in prayer as our only hope and refuge. (coughs) By the way, this is why the first petition that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. And so look carefully at verse 20. (coughs) I want you to notice how Gehazi breaks the third commandment. He does so by using the Lord's name, swearing an oath to the Lord to approve of his sins of theft and lying. Look what he says. He says, look, this is his internal dialogue. Look, my master has spared name in this Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, he's swearing an oath in the name of the Holy Jehovah. He says, but as the Lord lives... I will run after him and take something from him. Do you see how, how astounding this is? He, is? he is taking the Lord's name in vain to, to uphold his, his theft and his lies. But that's just the beginning. His second sin, and I want us to focus on this at some length, and that is Gehazi's greed. When I say Gehazi's greed was sin, I am not so naive as to think everybody in this room will immediately agree with me, or even that most in this room will agree with me. There are many who will say that greed is good. Perhaps you'll recall a few years ago when Ivan Besky went to prison and paid, at that time, a record fine of $100 million for insider trading. He'd been the the darling of Wall Street. And when he was riding on the top of the wave, He spoke at the graduation ceremony at the School of Business at Cal Berkeley, and he said these words. Greed is all right, by the way. You need to know that. Greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. Greed is good. His statement was greeted with a loud, sustained, standing ovation by the graduates. Now, of course, this ethic, the ethic of greed, stands in direct Contrast our Lord's condemnation of the Pharisees for their greed. You remember that Jesus said to them, and oh, how they ground their teeth in Luke 11. You Pharisees, you make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed. What do I mean by greed? And I want you to see it in the life of Gehazi. And maybe, just maybe, I want you to see it in your own life. By greed, we mean it's an inordinate desire for gaining and possessing wealth. It's a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. Greed, by the way, is forever discontent. It never has enough. Greed is insatiable. It always wants more. The greedy man lives for and serves, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, mammon. The medieval writer Dante pictured the greedy man as being chained to the ground, with his back turned towards heaven and his eyes fixed on the earth. Dante rightly saw the problem. Greed is misdirected love. Greed is a heart condition. Greed adores the goods that are temporary and rejects the things that are eternal. Greed is happiness, even elation in the possession of wealth and depression, sadness on account of the absence of it. It is when your emotions and your life 
are ruled either by the presence or the absence of wealth. How do you know someone is greedy? You're going to say, Carl, I get it, but I'm going to keep pressing you here now. How do you know if someone is greedy? There's at least four ways you know. The first is a man is greedy if his conversation is always about money and financial issues. Years ago, I had an elder that I never remember having even the shortest conversation with him that was not about finances. He constantly talked about the economy and its impact on his investments. He worried aloud with me several times that he would be able to reach his goal of having $5 million in the bank for retirement. He fretted over church finances constantly. He would not let anybody in his family purchase anything. He had to do all the purchasing. And after a while, I stopped having meals with him in a restaurant because he would do a 15-minute discussion with me about how high the prices were on the menu. And when the waitress came, he would complain to her how expensive the food was and would ask if he could get a discount. A person is greedy if all their conversation is about money and financial issues. Second, a person is greedy if his thoughts run immediately to the amassing of possessions. This dress, that car, the new this, the upgraded that. A third way, and now I'm getting very close to home, that you know a man is greedy is if it pains him to give, especially generously. A fourth way you know a man is greedy is you know a man is greedy if he will break the law of God to acquire more. This is the man who will disobey God's clear command to tithe. He's greedy. Or this is the man who will work on the Lord's Day in order to get time and a half, and, and he's greedy. And what I want us to see is how deep-rooted the sin of greed is. It is a life-dominating sin. It's a, it's a rooted sin. This was stated in what Pastor Dodds read a moment ago in 1 Timothy 6. Riches themselves are not evil, but they're dangerous. The desire for riches... Proves to be a snare, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, and men drown in them, and in many cases, it's led to apostasy. Greed is so deeply rooted, it will cause a man to deny Christ. That was Judas's problem, we're told in Luke 22. Greed will cause men, it's so deeply rooted, it will cause men to rob God, we are told in Malachi 3. And greed, listen to me carefully. Remember this very carefully. Greed is a disqualifier for spiritual office. It's interesting in 1 Timothy 3, both for the office of deacon and for the office of elder, one of the qualifications is the elder, the deacon, cannot be a man who's known as greedy. All this sums up in greed is a mark of the lost man. Ephesians 4, Paul says, they have their understanding darkened, Being alienated from the life of God, they've given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The thing that makes greed so insidious on top of all this is greed is deceptive. Greed will tell you that if you can only get that, that car, that house, that trip, those clothes, if you'll only get that, Then you'll be at ease and you'll be content and you'll be happy. If you can only get that. Of course, the world and the devil cooperate with your flesh by bombarding you with advertising and catalogs. 
Greed promises the abundant life, but Jesus promised abundant life by not giving you an abundance of possessions. Greed's a deceiver because it lies about the value of others. Greed tells you that people are no longer valuable if they're not capable of useful work or productive labor. And greed tells you that time spent with children is unprofitable because they can't do anything for you and therefore it has no tangible payoff. Greed tries to tell you that you can attain self-sufficiency and you'll not need to be dependent on a sovereign God. As I said a moment ago, this is a sermon within a sermon. What do you do about greed? Because it's rare in scripture we see so somebody so dominated by greed that he will do anything to get what he wants. And that's Gehazi. What should you do about greed? If you anything I've said tonight, you're thinking, Carl, you, you, you may be talking about me tonight. Let me tell you eight things to do. First of all, carefully examine your motives, your actions and your habits as related to your money and possessions. Do you view your bank account, your 401k, your home, your car, your wardrobe as your security, your source of contentment? And how many of your conversations are about your finances, your expenses, your trips, your possessions? Carefully examine all things relative to your stuff. Second, name greed when you see it as a sin. When was the last time you ever confessed in prayer? Just you and the Lord in your prayer closet. When was the last time you ever confessed a sin that you're greedy? Ever? A third thing to do about greed. Put off and put on. You know the New Testament dynamic, that the New Testament is not content to just say, okay, stop that sin, mortify it, but always tells us what to put on. At the same time that we're mortifying greed, we are to put on gratitude to God for his generosity. Greed is never thankful, only grasping. That we're to put off greed and put on tithing. A remedy for greed is to give away regularly on the first day of the week as an act of worship and acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ, that which is His. Put off and put on generosity. So we put off greed and tight-fistedness. Generosity will break the chains of greed. Let every check you write be a declaration of independence from the idol of mammon. And also put on contentment. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Fourth thing to do about greed. Recognize that the world is constantly disagreeing with Scripture and telling you that greed is good and healthy. My friends, do you not know by this point that advertising is not just information, it's indoctrination. If Jesus spoke these words, be on your guard against every form of greed, to people in the first century, many of whom lived day to day, who never saw a catalog in their life, how much more strongly would he speak it to us as Americans living in the most materialistic culture in the history of the world? 
push back against the culture of materialism, especially for your children. Parents recognize that the world is training you and your household at younger and younger ages to be greedy and grasping and wanting more. A fifth thing to do about greed. Hold on to your stuff loosely. Corrie ten Boom, the Dutch Christian who was imprisoned at Auschwitz for hiding Jews from the Nazis in World War II, used to say, I have learned that I must hold everything loosely because when I grip it tightly, it hurts when my father pries my fingers loose and takes it from me. You should hold your possessions loosely because you can't be keeping them forever. That's why Jesus tells you to lay up treasures in heaven. Remind yourself and one another, I will soon have no use for this home, these antiques, this fund, this car, these clothes. Very soon, I'll not need any of these. The sixth thing to do about greed. Tell yourself regularly, there are better things than money and possessions. Christian growth Biblical understanding, family harmony, godly fellowship with God's people are all far better than stuff. The seventh thing to do about greed. Remind yourself and others frequently, money and possessions are not an end in themselves, but they are a means to an end. Money and possessions are are simply tools to be used for God's glory. Therefore, serving God and others. For example, your home. Your home is not for ostentation. Or admiration. Your home is for hospitality and evangelism and covenantal faithfulness. Eighth thing to do about greed. The real solution to greed can only be found in a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. The more you're interested in pursuing that relationship, the less you'll be obsessed with having more stuff. If, as Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, what then does it consist in? Jesus tells us, consist in being rich towards God, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Back to our text. We've seen already with Gehazi, he's one who takes the name of the Lord in vain, who's greedy. Look at his third sin. He's discontent. But this is a special kind of discontentment. Look at verse 20. Gehazi is dissatisfied with the Lord's mercy. Look what he says in his inner dialogue. Of course, he would never dare say this out loud, and neither would you. But look what he says to himself in verse 20. Look, my master has spared Naaman, and here it comes, this Syrian. While not receiving from his hands what he brought, But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. He's very discontent. He didn't like the fact that God healed Naaman the Gentile without charge. This is much like Jonah who didn't like God's free mercy to Gentile Ninevites. Or like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son who didn't think his younger wayward brother was deserving of grace. You see, greedy people don't like it when others are generous especially when Jehovah is free with his kindness. But now I want you to think about the aggravations of his sin. (coughs) Gehazi's sins were aggravated, and I'll speak of four aggravations. (coughs) Not familiar with that term? Listen to our larger catechism, and perhaps receive some instruction on ethics in the moment. Our larger catechism, question 150, says, 
are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? And if you say yes, you're dead wrong on your ethics. Listen to the question again. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? The answer comes back. All transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves, and by reasons of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And so let me point out four things that aggravate Gehazi's sins. The first aggravation is Gehazi's sins were aggravated by the fact that he ran to commit them. Look at verse 21 in our text. We read, so Gehazi pursued Naaman when Naaman saw him running after him. Do you see what Gehazi is doing? He is so intent on being greedy, so intent on lying, so intent on taking the name of God in vain, that he's sprinting to sin. This aggravates us. Now, how do I know that's an aggravation? Listen to these familiar words from Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Feet that are swift to run to evil. That's Gehazi. A false witness who sows lies. That's Gehazi again. Paul speaks of such men in Romans 2.5 when he says, Such men are treasuring up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's a second aggravation to his sins. Look at verse 22. And that is his sins of theft were, were aggravated by dishonesty. In fact, you're going to have a hard time when you read anything Gehazi says in this chapter, finding anything that he ever says that is true. He's a pathological liar. So, for example, look at verse 22. When he runs up to Naaman's chariot and Naaman asks him if all is well, he says, and listen to this story. I'm thinking, wow, this is good. He must be practiced at weaving these tall tales. He says, uh, indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And so his sin is aggravated by dishonesty. And then he does it again. Look at verse 25. When Elisha asks him, when he comes back, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, oh, your servant didn't go anywhere. And so his sins are aggravated by the fact that he's a liar. The third aggravation of his sins. His sins of theft were aggra aggravated by hiding his deeds. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, when they're brought back to town, he puts them away in the house. Then he, let, he stored them away in the house, then let them in go, and they departed. This is just like Achan in Joshua 7. Gehazi had forgotten, or perhaps he never knew, that God is omnipresent, sees all, and reveals it to his prophets. Then a fourth aggravation. His sins of theft were aggravated by his long association with Elisha, much like Judas's three years with Jesus. Every day, you see, Gehazi could study up, could study up close the lifestyle of the man of God, God's prophet and mouthpiece to Israel. Gehazi had been standing right there and had seen Elisha raise the Shunammites, Shunammite woman's son to life. Gehazi had seen the river Jordan open wide like the Red Sea when Elisha struck it with Elijah's cloak. 
He'd seen all these miracles and all of these only accrued to his accountability, aggravating his sin. So listen to Elisha's prophetic rebuke. Look carefully at verse 26 and 27 to close the chapter. Elisha, when rebuking him, says to Gehazi, Did my heart not go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Now stare at those words. Elisha's stating he wasn't there. He went back in his house when Naaman left. But he says, didn't my heart go with you? It's an astounding statement of the prophetic knowledge that true prophets have. But Gehazi would have known that. This was part of the gifting of the prophet, since prophets in the Old Testament are called seers. So today, when a man or a woman claims falsely in every case, in every case, to be a prophet, they are claiming they can see people and events in other places. No, this is only the purview of the prophet, and it ceased with the death of the last apostle. But look what this little insight tells us about what a true prophet is in verse 26. Elisha says, Just because you left, my heart went with you because of these profound prophetic gifts. I could see what you were doing out on the road with Naaman. And then he issues the rebuke. Look at Elisha's rebuke to Gehazi in verse 26. He asked him a question. Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Elisha here in this moment puts his finger on one of the worst features of Gehazi's offense. Elisha is demonstrating that he knows Gehazi's intent for the funds. God has given him prophetic insight into Gehazi's motives and plans. Do you know what they are? Look at verse 26. Right there is what Gehazi intended to do with the money that he had received from Naaman. Gehazi intended to leave his service to the prophet and set up business. They're named right there. Look at it. Olive groves and vineyards, raising sheep and oxen. In other words, he's going to stop assisting the ministry of Elisha and live the life of the gentleman farmer with servants. Because Gehazi, deep down, he chafes in service to the kingdom of God. It's beneath him. It's something to be escaped as soon as possible. And so let me ask you, do you chafe against serving in the kingdom of God? Helping in the nursery, teaching catechids, Sunday school, bringing a meal, giving a ride. Let this text remind you that the lowest task in the kingdom of God is better than evil gain in material things. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But now the text takes a dark turn. The text shows us the covenantal, generational nature of sin and its punishment. Look carefully at verse 27, the end of the chapter. And it just ends this way. Therefore, Elisha tells Gehazi, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. Why should the consequences of Gehazi's sin be visited upon his children and grandchildren? Listen to me carefully. Because sin is covenantal. It's generational. It's transmitted. The consequences of Adam's sin, for example, have been passed on now for 200 generations. 
This is why Paul can write in Romans 5, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Now if you dislike this, and you think, Hey, that isn't fair. I don't like the fact that sin is transmitted. Well, the problem is, is God is covenantal in all his dealings. Not only is sin transmitted, but blessings are transmitted. And nobody has ever said, hey, that's unfair. So notice the miracle of judgment. Look at the end of verse 27. As soon as... Elisha pronounces upon Gehazi, this leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. He went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. And what we see is the immediacy of the case of leprosy has, I've told you before in the weeks before, how slow leprosy moves at first, weeks, months, years. It eats away at ears, nose, appendages, finally speeding up years down the line. First of all, the skin turns black and then it turns snowy white after a few years. But notice how immediate the judgment is. Look carefully at verse 27. Gehazi doesn't go through the early stages of leprosy, but was instantaneously at the final stages, the death knell. And I want you to think of a little bit of the irony, some of the dark humor here. What has he just taken from the hand of Naaman? Sets of clothes, elegant clothing. What use will he have now for those clothes when Leviticus 13, in giving the law of the leper, says, The leper shall tear his clothes and go about crying, unclean, unclean. Okay, Gehazi, put on those nice new clothes you got from from Naaman the Syrian, but rip them. And you'll be far away. Nobody can marvel at your good fashion sense because nobody can come within hundreds of yards of you. And you'll have to cry out, unclean, unclean. Who will care about your nice new clothes then? How do we apply this? The thing that I have to say over and over again is the Bible is just as ready to speak of the judgment and wrath of God as it is to speak of his kindness and mercy. Woe be to the church or the minister who wants to cover, deny, neglect, or ignore the true character of God. What we have in this chapter is a perfect balance. We see God's mercy to lepers, Gentile lepers, in his kindness to Naaman. And we see God's wrath upon unrepentant sinners. This chapter in itself contains the perfect balance of the attributes of God. The second application. Gehazi, and why the wrath of God is so strident against him, is he misrepresents the character of God to Naaman. He presents to Naaman that God is a taker rather than a giver. But of course we know that the Father gave his only Son for our salvation. The Holy Spirit comes and gives us gifts when he indwells. And since this is true, how can anyone who has received the free gift of grace be greedy to get something? What makes Gehazi so wicked is he misrepresents God. He teaches Gentile unbelievers and then believers that God wants something from you. When God doesn't, he wants to give something to you. But I want you to notice Gehazi's thoughts are revealed. He thinks that nobody knows what he's been thinking or where he's been. But the man of God knows. 
Gehazi is not the only one whose thoughts will be revealed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, There is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be known. The unrepentant sinner thinks, like Gehazi, that he can conceal his sin. But he'll discover on the last day, to his great horror, that every evil word, every despicable thought, every dark deed will be exposed in minutest detail. Consciousness of this fact should move you to keep short accounts with God. Knowledge of this coming day will help the believer to keep his life pure even when he's alone. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are infected with the greed of Gehazi. Enable us to respond rightly to this word and repent as we hold the mirror of your word up to our own face. Enable us to mortify all greed and discontentment which will be so easily passed down to our children. And in its place, give us contentment with our lot in life. Contentment with your mercies. And even contentment with your showing kindness to those we would never consider. By this word, Lord, mature us and sanctify us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.